so special, isn't it, to have a time where uh, together we can just focus on worshiping Jesus and, and offering Him our lives and seeing that breakthrough. And it's a real privilege to gather with you today and just continue our Who May Dwell series. And uh, to do so, I, w- I want to start actually by sharing a, a story uh, out of my life a number of years ago. My wife and I were, were living in New Zealand. We had moved to New Zealand to Auckland to go to Bible school there. And, uh, you know, we were both full-time Bible school uh, kind of students. We, we had no money. Uh, holidays to us didn't really mean much other than getting in a car and driving somewhere and looking at the views. And we were in this moment where we had been through a really intense semester. And we we're like, we just need to get out. We need to go on holiday somewhere. We need to get out of our, our Bible college kind of environment. And so uh, we had some friends that owned a, a home in the north part of the North Island in New Zealand. And so uh, one day, one Friday after lectures, we jumped in our car and we set off. It was about, I think, about a four or five hour drive to get up north uh, to go and and join these friends of theirs in their home. And and we set off late in the afternoon and by about nine o'clock at night, we're still on the road. We're in the middle of nowhere. We don't know New Zealand that well. Uh, We got our maps and everything. We're trying to get to this destination and Chris and I are are starving. We're like so hungry. And and we decided, okay, well, the next town we come across, we're going to stop and we'll get a takeout. We'll get something to eat. It's around about nine o'clock at night. And of course we're driving and, you know, this is New Zealand. There's not towns like everywhere. And so we're, we're driving and suddenly we come across this random town in the middle of nowhere. I could not even tell you where this town is today. Don't know if I'd ever be able to find it again. And it was a classic sleepy New Zealand type town where maybe there's about 50 residents or something. And they've got a small little high street there. And there are two restaurants on the high street. And you know, that in any little New Zealand town, there's always going to be two kinds of restaurants. There's going to be a fish and chip shop, and there's going to be a Chinese restaurant. There's going to be one of those two things, right? And sure enough, we drive into this kind of village in the middle of nowhere, and there they are. There's a fish and chip shop, and there's a Chinese restaurant. And Chris and I look at each other, and we're like, let's go to the Chinese restaurant. I mean, this would be awesome, right? We're going to go in there. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've lived in Hong Kong 32 years. I'm going to go into this Chinese restaurant in the middle of nowhere in New Zealand, right? Where probably there hasn't been a Chinese person visit that restaurant in years, right? I'm going to go into this restaurant and I'm going to whip out my amazing Cantonese. And I'm going to blow away the person that owns the restaurant. Now, now this restaurant was one of those ones that has those like really horrible, greasy plastic things that hang in the doorway that ugh, you, you kind of don't want to touch, right? But you got to push them out of the way to get into the room. And so this is what I did, right? So I, I pushed out the plastic stuff. I jumped kind of into the restaurant and no one is in this restaurant. Obviously nine o'clock at night, no one in there except for this really old Chinese guy, this chef standing behind the counter. He, he was probably in his late 70s, early early 80s. He had loads of wrinkles. He was like this beautiful old Chinese guy. And he looked really upset that he had a customer. You know what I mean? And I jump in and I'm like, go into my Cantonese routine. Okay, are you ready for this? Here we go. This is what I did. I was like, like this, right? I was like, oh, I was like, oh, I was like, Wait, 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 I'm going, going, going. Uh, uh, oh, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, Right, this, right? So I whip out this amazing can. Now, I know, I know, right now, right now, some of you are freaking out at how amazing that Cantonese was. You can write in the chat right now, give me a score, one to 10, how good was my Cantonese? Come on, I'm going to read it later, be nice, be nice, but you know. 
I whip out this amazing Cantonese, right? I, I, I do it. And the guy behind the counter, it's so funny. I go through the whole thing. Now, by the way, in 32 years, that's all I've ever learned in Cantonese, right? All I, I can ever order is barbecue pork with rice. Now, I whip out that Cantonese. The guy behind the counter, he's like this. There's this pause, this silence. And he's like... And he came out with this biggest smile that you'd ever seen. And he was like... Whoa! <laughs> and he just let go with like two minutes worth of constant, not even taking a breath, Cantonese. He was so excited that in the middle of nowhere in New Zealand, that this white guy had shown up with some pretty marginal Cantonese, but it didn't matter because it set his life on fire. It was like years dropped from his face. It was like he was so excited that there was somebody who spoke his language in his restaurant. And so for like two minutes, he's like, wow. I have no idea what he's saying, right? But I'm, I'm just standing there going like, oh, ho, ho, mm-hmm, ho, mm. Like agreeing with everything he said. I have no idea what he was talking about. At the end of those two minutes, he takes a breath. And then he goes again for like another two minutes. And like later on, he then makes my rice and stuff. And he's so, and he like talked for hours. And I was just like, mm-hmm. But there's something that happened in the moment. You know, it, it, it's amazing how moments like that remind us of truths that we kind of know inside of us, but then it takes like a dramatic moment like that to remind us. And, and the truth is this, our words, they matter. What we say, how we say it really actually matters. Like, like the words that can come out of our mouths, they have the power to change circumstances and situations. They have the power literally to bring life and death. And because of this, our scriptures have so much to say to us about the power of words, about the power of the tongue, about the ways in which we speak, the things that we reflect on in our hearts and the things that come out of our mouths. In fact, the poets and the Psalms and the wisdom writers in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, these writers are so fascinated by how the words that we speak can change the environment in which we live. And so, so much of our scriptures focuses on the power that our tongue has to bring life and death, which is not surprising that when we read Psalm 15, the psalm that we've been embedded in for this series over the summer, where we've been looking at this reality of a psalm asking us this simple question, who can dwell in the presence of God? I mean, I mean, who is able to live in God's presence? Who's able to fill His Spirit and be inspired and lifted up by Him? Who's able to carry the presence of God in their lives? Well, yes, it is the one who walks blamelessly, as Susanna spoke to us about a few weeks ago. Yes, it is the one who is able to act in love to neighbor, like Ellison spoke about just last week. But it is also the one who is able both in their hearts and in their mouths to speak truth, to speak words that bring life. Those are the ones that are able to flourish and dwell in the presence of God. In fact, I want to read you exactly what this says here in Psalm 15. Let's go to that passage that we've been looking at. And um, I'm just going to read the first three verses for us today. It says this, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live actually on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and his, who, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth in their heart and has no slander on their tongue. Notice that. Who speaks the truth in their heart and has no slander on their tongue. I, I want you to see right off the dual element that the poet is bringing to the understanding of words here. 
He's saying, if you want to truly understand the power of words, they come in two things, both the heart, the soul, what is inside of us, as well as what is said from our mouths. There's the internal element, those that speak truth in their hearts, the ones that are able to reflect and think and and sit on the beauty of God's word and the truth, the absolute truth that there is. And a God who creates this world is passionately wanting to save us within it, who sends his son in his death and resurrection, who brings us into eternal life, forgives us of our sins and sets us free. The beautiful truth of the gospel, those that sit in it, reflect in it, dwell on it, are able to enter his presence. But not just that. The dual element is, yes, those that dwell in it in their hearts, but also those that speak it out. It says here, those that, whose tongues do not offer any slander, whose tongues don't speak evil, don't speak lies, don't bring people down, but instead their tongues lift up. Those are the ones that are welcome in my presence. It's like the poet right at the start of the psalm wants to tell us something that's deeply important when it comes to the power of the words. That the words we speak externally betray the choices we make internally. Come on, church, think about this for a sec. The words we speak externally betray the choices that we make internally. And and the psalmist is, is so keen to stress that both the heart and the mouth have something to say about whether the words that come out of you are going to be either life-giving or will bring death. Now, to understand why the poet is thinking this way, we actually have to understand a couple of things about ancient Hebrew worldview and context about words. Let Let me share some of these with us just briefly. One of the things that we need to realize is that the ancient Hebrew writers thought of words not just as sounds and syllables, but they actually thought of words as having materiality to them, substance to them. In in fact, the, the word that is used in Hebrew, both in the Psalms and in Proverbs, for the word word is nabar. And nabar can mean word or it can mean thing. In other words, it can mean a sound that has a syllable or it can actually mean a physical thing which is really confusing if you think about it. Throughout the Old Testament, this word nabar is used, and, and the translator is like, well, is it talking about word or is it talking about thing? And from a, a Western cultural perspective, and perhaps even an Eastern cultural perspective, we might find that incredibly confusing. It's like, would you just choose one word for one thing, please, right? But actually, in the Hebrew worldview, the reason why word can mean either a syllable that sounds or it can mean something physical is that in their worldview, words have materiality. They have substance. They are a thing, not just a sound. That when we speak and we speak over someone, that word is placed upon that person in some sort of physical way. Have you ever heard the expression that said, hey, their words had weight to them? That's the Hebrew understanding, the ancient Hebrew understanding of what words were all about. Each one of us, we, we've had this experience, haven't we, where, where, where we've actually been in a conversation with someone and we've left that conversation feeling heavy and weighed down and kind of just like, oh man, I'm so drained after that conversation. Or, or maybe we've had a conversation with someone and we've left it feeling inspired and lifted up and, and filled with life. That's the Hebrew understanding of what words do. They place something physical on us that can either drag us down or lift us up. I remember when I first came into encounter with this idea of what words are like, this materiality of them. I was in high school. 
And I, and I was keen to start doing some acting. And there was a play that was coming up that our school was putting on. And our drama teacher said, well, there's, there's a, a role in the play, Andrew, that I think you should audition for. And I'm like, great, what's, what's the role? He said, well, it's one of the main roles, um, but it's a role that uh, only does mime. All you'll have to do is mime. You don't have to say anything. And I, and I kind of interpreted that like, we don't want you to speak, Andrew. So we're going to give you a, a role uh, that makes sure that you keep your mouth shut, right? So he's like, it's a mime thing. Now, it's not like a, you know, this kind of mime thing, right? Like, it was actually a serious play, and this character had, had ways in which it kind of weaved himself around the narrative in mime-type ways. So, anyway, he said, I want you to audition. And he goes, here's the audition. I'm going to put a mirror on the stage, and I want you to come in, and you'll have five minutes in mime to interact with the mirror. And I had, like, five minutes to prepare. There was, like, a whole bunch of drama school students and everything watching. And the teacher put a mirror on the front of the stage, and then he was like, okay, go. And I just had to walk in and, and had to mime my interactions with this mirror for over five minutes. And, and something happened when I started to do it. I actually found myself in another world. It almost felt like I was no longer on that stage. I was no longer in that room with all those people. I felt almost transcendent in some way, that I was beginning to communicate something in me of, of a story that needed to be told about this mirror. And my five minutes went to seven minutes, which went to eight minutes, of which I realized I was over time. I put the mirror down on the floor, and I stood in front of everybody, and it's just silence in the room, complete silence. And, and the, the, the drama teacher, he leaned forward and he looked at me and he said this, and I remember these words. He said, he said, what you just did made me come alive. Can you imagine being like a 15-year-old high school student who's auditioning for a play, has never really done a lot of drama before, and the drama teacher leans forward and says, you just made me. There's something that you just did that made me come alive. And in those words that he spoke, something shifted in me. And, and I know this might sound a little bit grand, but the reality is I think I'm standing today as a senior pastor. I'm standing in this moment speaking to a camera right now because those words set in me a life. They, they filled me with something. They, they placed something material on me. It was like a calling in life. And from that moment forward, I knew that the one thing I wanted to do in my life was to stand in front of people in whatever ways that might be and help them to feel fully alive. I remember reading in Luke 24 that, that moment that after Jesus, Jesus has appeared to those two disciples on the Damascus road. They turn to one another and they say, weren't his words so life-giving? They said, weren't our hearts burning within us when he spoke the scriptures over us? That's the Hebrew understanding. It's the, the worldview that when words come, they place something over us that either lead us into great life or tear us down. And that's the other side of it, isn't it? That our words can disrupt. That our words actually can be weapons of war that our words can deeply hurt. I know many of us have struggled with this, that we have had words spoken over us by loved ones or people that we cherish or by teachers or by people of authority in our lives, and those words have cut us down. Words like, you've brought shame on the family. I, I never should have married you. You're a loser. You will never amount to anything. You're a mistake. You're stupid. I'm embarrassed by you. These words, when, when spoken over us, can hurt so deeply, can't they? They can begin to shape us, not into a place of life, 
but into a place of death. They could put those walls up that we saw in that worship time and begin to hem us in. They could make us feel any less of a person. They could rip away our identity in Christ. These words can deeply hurt us. And this is the physicality of words in the Hebrew worldview. That the words we speak can open up our hearts to the amazing flourishing of life. And just as quickly, they can cut us down and be like scars. The second part of the Hebrew worldview that's important for us to understand is this, that because words in their thinking have this physicality to them, when words are spoken, they, they don't just communicate something in the present moment, but they actually um, kind of shape the environment of all future moments. This is really important for us to understand that the words that are spoken, they don't just shape the communication of that present moment, but they actually go to shaping the environment of all future moments that might happen in that context. And the reason why the Hebrews began to think like this is because what we see in Genesis 1, God stands before creation. And what does he do? Does he think the world into motion? No, no. He speaks. He uses nabah. He, he says a word. And because that word has a physicality to it, a materialistic moment to it, it brings something into creation. And, and when God speaks, he's not just bringing something into the creation for that passing moment, but he's establishing something of an environment for all of the future. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 is all about. The glory of a God who speaks a word, puts something into being that was not being, and sustains that through the word for its flourishing in the future. This is why when the Hebrews came to understand the creation of humanity made in the image of God, they then connected the dots and said, well, if when God speaks, he shapes future environments, we're made in the image of God. So when I speak, not only do I place something physically on someone, but I'm actually shaping the environment of that moment for that person in the future. I'm actually speaking something that's going to have a future impact on them. Words create worlds. And this was the deeply entrenched understanding in Hebrew thinking. And because of this, the way we utter our words is so important. Let me give you an example of this from, from actually Proverbs chapter 10, starting in verse 21. It says this, The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die from the lack of judgment. The, the lips of the righteous they nourish many. The word nourish there is in the present continuous tense. In other words, the words out of my mouth don't just do something in that moment, but they have the power to shape, to nourish, to continue to shape the life or the death of that person in the future. And when we begin to sit in that reality, we begin to understand why our scriptures and why the poet in Psalm 15 is so important for them to communicate the power that words have because they truly can shape the future for someone for many, many years. There's some of you that are watching this right now. And somebody said something over you years ago. And it, it, it still baffles you that those words still have a grip on your life today. But they do. And those words that were spoken over you that, that said something about you, that hurt you deeply, you're carrying those words. See, words in the Hebrew understanding are a traveling companion to life. We carry them around with us, and therefore there's a great need for our healing and our restoration. 
So to summarize this second worldview, I'd say it like this. God, in giving us words, those words have the power to shape the, the spaces in which we inhabit for either life or for death. And here's the question Psalm 15 is asking us. Which of those worlds are we creating? Let me ask you that right now. Which world are your words that are coming from your mouth creating? And, and I bet if I was to say to you, do you want to create life or death? You're going to be like, life, like, I want to create life. And the question then is, how do we do that? How can we have a consistent work in our lives that the words that we speak create life for people? Well, to answer that, let's go back to our passage from Psalm 15. And let's look closely at what the psalmist is trying to communicate. Let's start with the first one. He says this, here's how we make sure we bring life that we speak truth in our hearts. I want you to notice something here. It's really interesting. He says, speak truth in our hearts. He doesn't say, speak truth from our heart or speak truth out of our heart, which is what we might think it would say. It actually says, speak truth in his heart. Now, the reason for this is because the Hebrew thinking is trying to communicate to us that the very first person that needs to hear and know truth is ourselves. That actually I am, if I ever want to be a blessing externally to those around me, if I want to bring life in my words to those around me, I need to first of all make sure I'm preaching truth to myself. I need to make sure I'm speaking truth in my heart. That I'm not allowing the enemy to get a grip on my heart. That I'm not allowing the words that other people have said to try to determine my identity. That actually I'm going to the word of God to be the thing that speaks to who I am. And I'm constantly, consistently preaching, speaking truth in my heart. I'm saying, yeah, maybe some people think I'm a mistake. But actually what God says about me is this. He says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That those words are the ones that sit deeply and truthfully in me. That these are the things that I need to meditate on. See, I think we do this poorly as Christians. I think we so often rush to speak externally before we've actually told ourselves the truth. Before we've allowed the moments to look at the darkness of our hearts at times and say, I don't want this. No, I'm going to speak the word of God into myself. Some of you need to begin to practice preaching to yourself. I know that sounds weird. You come to church and, and you have someone else preach to you. Some of you actually need a consistent, habitual lifestyle of opening the Word of God and allowing the Scriptures to speak God's truth into yourself. And for you to say, I am this, I am that, I will be this, I believe this. And as we speak truth in our heart, guess what? That then can overflow in the things that we say. Let me show you this quickly uh, from another passage in Proverbs. This is uh, Proverbs 22, starting in verse 11. It says, he who speaks or has love, uh, uh, sorry, he who loves a pure heart in them will speak graciously and have the king for his friend. I love this idea that, that if I speak truthfully to myself, if I immerse myself in the truth of God, then the words that will come out, there will be grace-based words. See, the reality is this, the health of your heart determines the grace of your words. 
If your heart isn't healthy, if your heart is, is not in a good place, then you're going to find yourself more often than not consistently speaking words that are going to be tearing others down. You'll be trying to be defensive. You'll be trying to fight for yourself. You'll be trying to belittle others in order to raise yourself up. If your heart isn't healthy, if you're not speaking truth in your heart, then what's going to overflow out of you is going to be evil. This is why Jesus, in speaking in Luke chapter 6 to the disciples, he says, man, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's, it's out of the thing that's in here that, that, that determines the grace that comes out of here. And whether I'll have a king for a friend or not, whether I align myself to right people or not will come out of the health that is in my heart. Here's two things that I think disrupts a healthy heart. The first is this, sin. And the second is hurt. Sin and hurt are two powerful ways that disrupt the health of our heart. Now, I'm going to come back to hurt a little bit later in the message, but let me speak briefly to sin right now. Some of you are wondering, why, why am I more angry in this season? Some of you are wondering, why do I have a consistent habit of, of bringing others down? Some of you are struggling with the reality that you know your language and you know your speaking is not bringing life. And I want to challenge you that the first thing you should be looking at is whether there's any sin that's there in your heart. Maybe, maybe sin towards how you feel about a person or how you think about them. Maybe sin in terms of some addictive behavior that you're, that you're engaged in. Maybe sin in terms of things that you haven't confessed to the Lord that you've just been carrying around with yourself and it's kind of been eating your heart away. Sin has the power to hold back the grace of your words. Peter actually uh, writing to the church in 1 Peter 2.22, he says it beautifully this way. He says this about Jesus. He says, Jesus, he committed no sin, so no deceit was found in his mouth. I want, I want you to see the connection Peter made. This might sound simple to us, but this is a profound theological thing that, that Peter is connecting here. He's saying Jesus had no sin. We know that. We know that Jesus was no sin. And because Jesus had no sin, nothing deceitful came out of his mouth. There's a connection between our sin and the words that we speak. And the first thing we should all do, no matter how righteous you might be feeling right now or how broken you might be feeling right now, the thing that we start with is to say, there is some darkness still in here. And I know that that's going to impact what I say out here. So God, I come to you now. I ask for you to forgive me. I ask you to examine my heart. I ask you to show me the things that are broken and wrong in me. I ask you to give me the courage to confess those things before you and to receive your forgiveness. A changed heart will be a changed mouth. The second thing in the psalm here is this. First of all, it's this idea of being challenged in this area of our hearts. Then he says, so that our tongues utter no slander. The word slander appears in the Old Testament a lot of times. It, it, the, the word in the Hebrew is lashan hara, but what it actually is translated to more often than not is gossip or specifically saying a lie about another person's character. So speaking bad about someone's character. Now, this is really important to follow church because this is why slander is seen as so bad in the scriptures. When we slander someone, what we're saying is whether we're making a lie up, we're gossiping, we're saying something that's not true about their character. And the reason why that's important in the Hebrew thinking is because we are humanity created in the image of God. God. And when you slander, when you lie about somebody else's character, you're not only pulling down their character, you're also beginning to call into question God's character. 
This is why this is so important in Hebrew thinking. In fact, the ancient rabbis believed that when you slandered someone, you actually broke 31 of God's laws and commandments. 31. And the way that they punished those that slandered, listen to this, this is crazy. They treated them the same way that they would treat those that had leprosy. You see, if you had leprosy in those days, what happened was you'd be so infectious to the community around you that you were taken out in isolation. There was complete social distancing in the Bible, okay? And this was for lepers. They were shunted out of community. They had to live in a separate community outside because they were so infectious. And when the rabbis were thinking about how do we punish someone for slander, they were like, slander, gossip, lying about somebody's character. It's so infectious in a community. It, it, it grows to such a way and so quickly in a community that we need to treat it like leprosy of the tongue and we need to cast this person out from community. So when you lie, when you slander, when you pull down someone's character, the Bible says you should be isolated, that you have no more any right to be a part of that community until you are cleansed, until you come before the Lord and you confess it and receive his love and are changed. Until that happens, your slander has cast you out. And I want you to see why this is so important. Because we're, we're tearing apart somebody's character and trying to say that their character is something that it actually isn't. And I, I tell you, right now in our world, <laughs> I mean, there is very little desire for actual objective truth anymore. In our world, what the focus is right now is not, is this true about someone's character? Our focus is, what do we popularly believe about that person? And, and if we have enough voices that tell us one thing about a particular person or a race of people, and that voice rises up loud enough, it doesn't matter whether that voice is true or not. What matters is that that's the influential opinion. And we've come to believe in this social media soaked age that influential opinion is what's more important than objective truth. I want to call that out right now. That's slander. And we should be excommunicated out of our communities, put in isolation, dealt with by the Holy Spirit, confess, and because He loves us, we can be redeemed and then brought back in to the community that will embrace and love us. But we have to realize that it's evil, that speaking out like that is wrong. And I see it all the time in social media. I, I've felt it myself. I've come under these slanderous things myself on social media. And, and when it happens to you, it really, really hurts. And it hurts because you know that's not who you truly are. And yet suddenly it feels like it's out of control because everybody else seems to be saying and picking up on that one opinion and that one truth. Church, we must be better than this. We must be able to stand up and say, no, I, I can't judge that person. I don't know their character. I don't know those deep, dark places where they're speaking truth into them. I don't want to judge just their actions. I want to let judgment be God's domain. My domain is love. My domain is to move towards this person in love. I may not agree with everything they seem to do. I may not agree with everything they seem to say. I will not slander their character because of their actions. I will leave judgment to God and I will love them as a neighbor. I wonder if we could actually live more like that than maybe then the truth that's spoken in our heart and the truth that comes out of our mouths may be pleasing to the Lord might actually begin to build the kingdom of God in a beautiful, powerful way. Let me give you three quick 
practical ways that you can begin to speak more truth in your life, both to yourself and your heart and to those around you. Three quick things. What I did this week is I read every single passage in the Old Testament that dealt with words. Trust me. I read every single one in the, in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. And I, I, then, I then took the teaching and I summarized it, what I think all of that teaching has to say about how we are to guard our mouths. And I think there are three practical things that the Scriptures teach us. Here's the first one. We are to speak less. Can I have an amen? We are to speak less less. The average human person speaks 16,000 words a day. And do you know women speak more words a day than men? That's a proven fact. It's a proven fact, okay? I know, I know, I know there are some, there are some husbands right now who are looking at their wives like, mm-hmm, preach it, Andrew. And there are some wives that are digging their husbands right now, looking at them too, right? We all speak a lot of words, whether we're men or women. We all speak a lot of words. And the scriptures would say one of the things that we have to do in terms of guarding our tongue is actually to speak less. God gave us two ears and one mouth. We have to think about that ratio. Keep our mouth small and our ears open. And actually, I have to say, I've been really trying to practice this in the last number of weeks since we put out the national security law statement. I've really realized that I need to open my ears much more to the diversity of our church. And I really prayerfully hope that I'm doing that in an honoring way to you in this season. May we speak less, recognizing that our words have weight and they shift and change future environments. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Speak fittingly. In other words, speak the words at the right time and in the right way. Sometimes our commitment to speaking truth can actually come off very hurtful to others, even though objectively it might be true about them. We have to be really mindful of timing, of tone, and of the fact that our communication, our words actually, are just a very small part of what we actually say. But the way we say it, the way we act, our body language, our tone also communicate way more. And so the way we speak is as important as the words we speak. So we have to speak fittingly. Well, how do we do that? We, we have to take the time to ask ourselves the harder questions, discerning whether the motives of our hearts to say the thing we want to say is true and good. We have to look into our lives and begin to ask those questions of prayer. God, uh, is this the right time? Is this the right way? And then one other thing that we can do very practically about speaking fittingly is maybe share with some trusted friend and say, you know what? I have this hard conversation I want to have with this person or I have this communication I want to do. I would love for you to read the words that I'm going to say and I'd love for you to help me to just discern whether this is the right time, the right way to say it. Every single one of us, right? We've written that email that we sent and then we read it the next day and we're like, oh my gosh, did I send that? I can't believe I sent that, right? Speak fittingly. Weigh your words. Take the time. Bring them before the Lord and discern. Thirdly and finally this, speak honestly. Now this is actually a really hard thing to do. It's easier to lie. It's easier to be lazy and lie. It takes a lot of courage, strength to speak honestly and truthfully. There, there's a beautiful uh, proverb. I think it's Proverb 24, uh, verse 26. And it says this. It says that when we speak honestly, when we speak truth, it's like a kiss on the lips. I love that idea that honesty is linked to intimacy. Follow this church. Honestly is linked to intimacy. That when we're honest with someone, it's like a kiss on the lips. It's like we're honoring them. We're loving them. Here's the reality. Some of you are too unloving to be truthful. 
Come on, church, sit on that one for a moment. Some of us are too unloving to be truthful with the people around us in our lives. And again, we've got to speak less and we've got to speak fittingly, but sometimes it is right to speak in love and honesty. Some of you are, are keeping honest answers to your spouse, honest answers to your parents, honest answers to the friends around you in your life because you think you're trying to protect them. I want to challenge you that, yeah, you've got to be wise about how you do it. You've got to be wise about when you do it. But speaking truth is loving. It's an act of intimacy. And as we do so, we're honoring the character of God in the other person. And we're receiving that in our lives. Can I encourage us to speak less, speak fittingly, and also finally, to speak honestly. Let me close by addressing a final thing. And that is hurt that's caused by our words. We all have felt it, haven't we? Those words that have been spoken that are weapons those words that have deeply, deeply done death in us. Words that we've struggled with and maybe carried around with us for many years. And I've already spoken a little bit about that in this message. I want to speak to this because I think it's really important. And I recognize, as I already shared earlier in our service, that even some of the words I've written recently have hurt some of you. We do hurt one another with our words. And we can either try to shy away from that or we front up and we're honest with it. And we explain that that wasn't what we were intending, and yet we recognize that that's what's happened. And sometimes in other contexts, we actually do intend it, and that's really bad, and we need to confess. Our words can hurt, and they hurt deeply. As I was praying for this message, I sensed so much of that hurt in us. And I want to be honest that even in the last few weeks, there are some things that I've read that have been written about me online that have really hurt me personal things said about me online that have really hurt me. And because we all sit in the reality of this hurt, as I was praying and preparing for this message, I felt like the Holy Spirit say this, Andrew, I want to speak again because I am a God who speaks words that always bring life, that everything that comes out of my mouth comes out to lift up, to heal, to restore, to reconcile and bring life. And Andrew, there are many people in the Vine Church who are carrying around deep hurts and deep wounds and pain from words that have been spoken over them. Tell them, Andrew, on Sunday that I'm about to speak new words over them. Could you imagine that our God is one who, when he speaks, can separate light and darkness, that when he speaks, can separate water and earth, that when he speaks, he says, get up and the dead thing rises, that when he speaks, things begin to change uh, that could never do. When he says, still the storm, the waves come down. That's the God that we have, his nabar, the words that bring physicality and change future environments. He's the one who's standing over all of the hurt that you're carrying right now, all of that stuff that deeply has impacted you, all the words that have become the traveling companions of your life that someone has said, and he stands over you right now, and he says, someone told you you're a failure? Listen to this. I have wonderfully and perfectly created you and I have every good gift in store for you. Someone said that you would never make anything in your life. I want you to hear this. I have fearfully and wonderfully made you. I have placed a mission inside of you. You're going to prosper in your future. Someone says you're ugly. I want you to know this, that there is no one in the world that reflects the beauty of the image of God like you. You are unique and wonderful wonderfully crafted by me. Oh, someone told you that you are a mistake. 
I have put my fingerprint on you. And I want you to rise up and flourish and become the person that I've created you to be. Would you hear today afresh for you the words of a God who when he speaks, something comes that was not there before. A God who uses his words to create. And where those hurts have gone so deep in us, may he draw out those hurts, create his healing by speaking a word that is the truth about who you truly are. Words matter. They can change the atmosphere of random Chinese restaurants and places in New Zealand. They can break off the hurt that's been carried for years. They can, as they speak truth in us, become grace words out of our mouths so that we might begin to build a church and a city and a culture that truly is the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us and pray for this kind of words to be at work in our lives. Holy Spirit, we come now. Father, each person who's listening to this in this moment, they open their hands, they quieten their hearts. Father, we stand in the recognition that words hurt, that words have the power of life and death, that they matter. And Lord, there's two ways in which we can respond today, both, I think, equally important. The first is realizing that there are words that we speak that have hurt others. Realizing that out of the overflow of the heart, our mouths speak. Realizing that sometimes that there is the brokenness in us, that hurting people hurt other people. And I'm sure for every single person who's listening to this right now, we can recognize that even in the last few weeks, there have been words that have come out of our mouths that we're not proud of. And so, Father, our starting point today is that commitment in our lives to speak truth to ourselves. That where there's darkness and brokenness, that we would speak truth into ourselves. And that out of that place of renewed truth in our hearts would come truth out of our tongues. Forgive us, Lord, where we've slandered, gossiped, pulled down, spoken, whether out loud or typed into a keyboard or even just thought in our hearts negatively about someone. Judge them. Defame their character. Lord, in this day and age, we do it so often. Forgive us, Lord. That is not the people you've called us to be. And Lord, as we confess the reality of our own broken mouths and tongues, we also bring before you the words that have hurt us, the ones that we have received that have been spoken over us, often from loved ones, often from those that we've trusted, perhaps our pastor. And these words have hurt us deeply. And Lord, it is your word that can heal the broken words of others. Lord, it is your restoring voice that can speak to the brokenness in us. Lord, it is your word that we now need to hear. So Lord, would you speak? Father, you know the heart of every person right now. You know the depths of the, of the words that have hurt and how they've hurt. And so, Father, you know the word that needs to be spoken by your voice over them. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak to your children, Lord. 
I pray you'd bring restoration where it's needed, reconciliation. You would break off lies. You would push back the enemy. You would speak your truth to your people in this moment, Lord. And that in that, we would find ourselves coming fully alive. Take a moment as we go back into worship to allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. May our words be less. May His words be more. And may you hear your Savior speak tenderly and intimately to you now.